Well, happy Mother's Day, all you wonderful ladies. And I realize that uh, some of you might feel, well, actually, I'm not a mom. But someday you will have an opportunity to be a mom, whether that be an adopted mom or a biological mother. But we all have opportunities to step into people's lives, and I would encourage you just to pray for that because everyone needs a mom. And so we, uh, we encourage you to do that. So th we're on our, I don't know what Sunday in, in Luke. Uh, I, actually, we should ask probably what year we're on in Luke. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but we're, we're, we're still in Luke. We're getting there, though. And uh, the next series is going to be really exciting. And I'll fill you in more about that at another time. Um, so we're going to just begin by reading Luke verse, uh, chapter 23, beginning with verse 40, 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Uh, let's take some, uh, some time and pray for the message this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for yet another privilege, another time when we can be together as a digital church, as a digital family, and a digital community. Father, I thank you for those who have faithfully um, met us here in this format. And Lord, we are anticipating a great day of celebration and reunion when you um, let that be known to us. But Father, this morning we pray that we will uh, interpret these scriptures in the way they were spoken and uh, that we can be faithful to the truth of your word. And uh, Lord, we give you all the praise and glory for it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So many of us um, have experienced death up close and personal. For some of us, it's been family members or friends, um, spouses, children. The way most of us experience this is uh, when someone passes, there's a time at a funeral home or at a church when we go and pay our respects to the, to the family. And so we, we have contact with someone who has passed. And so sometimes that is our experience. It's a lifeless body that used to be a living being. Uh, but that is not quite even um, the most meaningful experience because by the time we go to a church, and be, if there's a public viewing, someone uh, who is an artist uh, has gone to great lengths to try to make that person appear to be as alive as possible uh, so that we can have one last goodbye. But some of us have had the experience of watching someone pass from this life into eternity. 
Now, as a side note, the eternity I'm speaking of is not the eternity that the Bible speaks of, because that automatically connects with heaven. So when we talk about as Christians going to be with God in eternity, what that means is we're going to heaven. But this eternity um, also has with it the, the implication that that is not where all of us go for eternity. We all are eternal beings. Our souls never die. Our spirits never die. They live forever. And some of us are privileged enough to be able to be looking forward to heaven, and some others have not made that very important decision. So there's, there's another experience with death that I've experienced, and um, it's the experience of having someone breathing right, cl right clo close to you or right beside you, and then they breathe their last breath. And uh, science can call, uh, call this many things because there's a definite difference. And they may call it um, science. They may, I, I don't there's all kinds of um, religions and superstitions that a accompany this. But there is a, a vacuum that is almost immediately recognizable in a body whose spirit has left that body. And I think it's important that we understand this because until we really come to grips with this, then there's room in the gospel account of the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection that perhaps he really wasn't dead. And if that is, and by the way, that's the claim of many people, thousands of people, uh, but we, we do have some proof of this. There is an excellent movie entitled Risen. I don't recommend movies very often anymore. It's called Risen. It is, in my opinion, one of the best movies concerning the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, had we been able to gather as a flock this year over the Resurrection Sunday celebration, we were going to show that movie, uh, offer that movie on, a, on um, an evening, in an evening. But we didn't have that opportunity. But this movie centers upon the centurion that was in charge of the death of Jesus Christ at the cross. And there's a scene in this movie where the centurion looks into the lifeless face of Jesus while Christ is still on the cross. They did this exceptionally well. And obviously the writers of this script understood the significance of driving this point home to their audience. There was a time when Jesus was alive, and then there was a time when there was death. There's no mistaking the two. Even if it's immediate, you're there at that point. His death was so obvious, by the way, that there was no need for the executioners to break his legs, which is it was what they had promised or what they had planned to do. That's how they speeded up the crucifixion process. They, know they didn't really have to break his legs, uh, uh, upon the cross to hasten his death. It was obvious he was dead. His death was so obvious, they placed him in a tomb. And this morning I would like to spend some time investigating the scene of the crime. There are a lot of books out, by the way, really great books on part of what we're going to cover. And uh, if you want to study this in detail, there, there are some great resources out there. But this was indeed a crime. 
visiting the scene of a crime. It was a crime. It was the single most atrocious and heinous execution of misjustice in human history. And it was directed toward God himself at the expense of his son. So, may I ask you a question? What parent this morning would not be willing to give their own life in exchange for the life of their child? This instinct, by the way, is built within the core of all of us. Even as fallen creatures, we see this type of heroism, this type of sacrifice taking place all the time. And any of us, I believe, would say, if I can lay my life down for the sake of my child, take my life and leave my child. May I ask you another question? Strictly from a human point of view as a parent, would you sit by and let your child sacrifice themselves for the sake of another child? Especially if you could intercede and make the sacrifice yourself. How many times have you seen your children hurt and possibly suffer and desired to take their place? Let's take it one step further. What if you knew that the child, your child, was going to make a sacrifice for the life of another child and that child would not turn out to be a good person as they grew older? Would you still let them sacrifice their life for the sake of that other child? Well, this morning we will look at the death of Jesus from uh, four different perspectives. The first perspective is a perspective from Rome. The second perspective is from the religious elites. The third perspective is from Satan and his minions. Uh, the fourth perspective we will wait, wait uh, save for the end of the, of the message today. All three groups have something in common. Rome, the religious elites, and Satan. They all have something in common. They all fear the exact same thing. They fear that Jesus might indeed rise from the grave. Rome, the religious elites, and especially Satan. Were their fears well-grounded? Did they actually believe that this could happen? Well, we look at Rome and we're thinking they, they couldn't believe in something so, as our world would say, so silly. But Rome did believe in the resurrections, a resurrection of people. So let's begin with our perspective on Rome. For us to fully understand the fear of Rome, meaning the local leaders of Rome. Now, this went all the way to Rome, but where this affects Christ is in Jerusalem under Pilate. But they all have the same belief. This might have had, uh, I'm sorry, for us to form, more fully understand the fear Rome might have had of the resurrection of Jesus, it would do us well to understand a bit about their religions. So this is a little bit of a history lesson, but I think it's a good one. There is truth in the concept that humankind, being made in the image of God, is incomplete without God. Thus, many people spend their lives seeking a God to make them complete and yet never find the God. 
This is succinctly described in two scripture passages. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, this describes the emperors and leaders of Rome and all who do not receive Christ. It was an incredibly pagan society. Um, we might think that almost as pagan as the United States, but the United States uh, is equal with Rome, perhaps more. Colossians, it says this, Colossians 2, in verse 8, it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to, the, get this, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul is addressing this in Colossians, and he's saying, be careful that you are not taken captive by the same philosophies, the empty deceit, or the human traditions, or the elemental spirits of the world that Rome has been taken captive by. And this describes the basic beliefs the emperors had fallen prey to and what governed their lives and their government. Verse 9 says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And there's the stark contrast. The emperors absolutely believed in mythology. They were superstitious. They were totally lost. They were deceived. And it all centered upon them. And so these ancient teachings in the elemental spirits of the world were, in, were influencing them. And Paul is giving them a warning. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And of course, this is who we become upon our salvation and is our source of wisdom and character that makes us change the way we think. If you are not thinking differently after you received Christ, as you did before you received Christ, I think you better go back to the cross and make sure that you were sincere as you received Him. If you have received Christ, He changes the way we think. So Rome was a totally pagan society. They considered their emperors to be gods. And if they didn't consider them to be gods, the emperors considered themselves to be gods. They were superstitious, steeped in mythology. They worshipped their own gods. And then they borrowed a few from Greece, just for good measure. The leaders made major, major political military, and social economic decisions based upon false gods and superstitions. We might think, how antiquated. I'm so glad we've, we've come be, uh, beyond that. But you know, there was a president of the United States not too long ago, well, longer than I would care to admit, where his wife consulted the stars to try to dictate his schedule because the stars were supposedly telling her and I don't mean Hollywood stars, I mean celestial stars. Stars were telling her what he should, what, how she should protect her husband. This is the wife of the President of the United States. So there's nothing new under the sun. So why is this significant this morning? Well, they were making these decisions. 
and the emperor became the symbolic presence of Zeus, who was the father figure of all the other gods. So, although not one of the original Olympians, the cult of Dionysus was very old and was celebrated through the Greek world and beyond as the god of the wine and of the pleasures of its cultivation. In other words, drunkenness. His cult became associated with their god, Demeter, at an early time. And Demeter's devotees ranged the entire spectrum of the social scale. So they were rich and poor, commoners and sophisticates. In other words, all walks of life. Now this particular god created a problem for Rome because they could not direct anything specifically to one particular group of people. The entire nation had begun to embrace um, Dionysus and Demeter. So likewise, this cultic observance ranged from all areas and from all uh, walks of life. Later, Rome, fearing that these festivals they were having would lead to civil unrest, attempted to suppress his cult, but it met with very little success. So Rome was recognizing they were having festivals, celebrating these gods, and they were becoming very difficult to control. They tried to suppress it, and it didn't work. So during the Roman period, a new legend developed about Dionysus, one that offers intriguing parallels to Christianity. By the way, I'm getting this off of the Internet. It's a great history site. <clears throat> According to this legend, Dionysus was killed while battling the enemies of Zeus, which was their primary father god, Zeus was. His body was dismembered, but Zeus restored him to immortal life. Henceforth, according to the late first century Greek philosopher Plutarch, Dionysus became a dying and rising god and a symbol of everlasting life. So, in Judeo-Christian theology and doctrine, we recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross for our sins. They put him in a tomb, a tomb and he rose again. Well, in Rome, they had the equivalent of that belief. So did Rome believe that a resurrection was possible? Yes, they did. They did believe a resurrection was possible. The last thing Rome wanted was for this Jesus of Nazareth to do something that would elevate him to the status of a god that their people were familiar with and respected. It is not that they believed it was anything special or divine. It was more that they feared his followers might do something deceitful that would create an aura of mystery and celebrity around him. And by the way, Jesus had to deal with that while he was walking on earth. Very early on in his earthly ministry, people were trying to elevate him. You are the king. You are going to save us from Rome. And Jesus constantly had to quell that. He constantly had to push that, that celebrity type thing aside from, from him. Rome also had their share of political issues as well. Everyone hated Rome. It's like the most powerful nation in the, in the world is hated typically by other nations. They were always warding off attempts by other nations and mercenaries to conquer them. And there was that whole assassination of Julius Caesar thing. 
So let's just say that Rome was a bit skittish at best, meaning Pilate was a bit skittish at best because that's where all of this begins to center and focus. So if we take this whole scenario down to a local level, we have Pilate who definitely does not want the minor inconvenience of crucifying a Jewish carpenter to get out of hand. His wife had already warned him to steer clear of Jesus, which he had not. And the high priests and Pharisees are like a gaggle of enraged geese pecking at his heels. They are merciless in their pursuit of power and prestige. And now the possibility of having 11 uneducated and unsophisticated groupies stealing this Nazarene's body from the grave was something he could not risk. All of this is to say that Pilate was absolutely sure that Jesus was dead. And he certainly feared a resurrection. So that's Rome's perspective. That's Pilate's perspective. The next perspective is from the religious elites, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, and all of those guys. Like Rome, the Jewish leadership feared a resurrection for a similar reason. They feared losing their power, prestige, and profits. And somewhat like Rome, they did indeed believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now the Sadducees disagreed with that. They did not believe in the resurrection. And you may recall when he first came into the temple within those first couple of days on his final trip into the temple, the Sadducees tried to debate him and gave him a couple of trick questions, one trick question. And of course, Jesus saw through that. So we have a disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about resurrection, and that's tension there. But he encountered both of those groups during his ministry, he dealt with them fine. In addition to this, Jesus had just, meaning a few days previously, raised Lazarus from the grave. Now he did this in front of witnesses, and with a once blind beggar, Lazarus and this beggar and a reformed tax collector came to Jerusalem. So he raised Lazarus from the dead in front of witnesses that had, that had followed him from Galilee. They have these witnesses of a resurrection. And they go on down through Jericho. He heals a blind beggar and he saves this chief tax collector. He comes on in to Jerusalem and there's a triumphal entry. So these guys... The Jewish leadership, even the Sadducees, had to recognize that there's a resurrection. Now, he had just, um, he had been into the, uh, uh, into the temple area two times when he cleared the temple. His first visit, he cleared the temple. The second year, he did not. The third year he came in, he cleared the temple. And this is in their mind as well. So the question is, what did they fear? And why did they hate Jesus? Because it went beyond fear. They hated him. R.C. Sproul points out that, out that there were three basic reasons the religious elites hated Jesus. The first is this. They were jealous of him. He was profoundly popular among the people. While they wouldn't think of having dinner with a tax collector, Jesus freely associated with people whom the Pharisees considered rabble. They couldn't stand it because they were envious and suspicious of his popularity. So there was envy. The second reason is he exposed their hypocrisy. They were counterfeit. They were fake. 
and nothing reveals a counterfeit like the presence of the genuine. Old story. When the treasury is trying to identify or train people to identify counterfeit bills, they don't train them in the counterfeit bills, they train them in the genuine bills. And if you know the genuine bills enough, then any counterfeit will begin to stand out to you. This is what the Pharisees were dealing with. Jesus comes into town, he is truth, he's the word of God, and he is exposing the hypocrisy of the religious elites. When Jesus walked this earth, true righteousness and holiness was manifested by him before the eyes of the people. This is R.C. Sproul. It didn't take exceptional brilliance to discern the difference between the real and the counterfeit. So the Pharisees were exposed, and because they were exposed by the true and authentic holiness of Christ, they hated him, and they couldn't wait to get rid of him. So the first is they were jealous. The second reason is he has exposed their hypocrisy. The third reason was those who were in positions of power and authority as the Pharisees and Sadducees were, were in fear of losing their power and authority. They also feared the consequences of, of a revolt against Rome. By the way, that would happen seven years later anyway. And that's when the, the temple is obliterated. But they feared losing their power and they didn't want to antagonize Rome. They feared the Romans. They feared that Jesus somehow would lead an insurrection. No, Barabbas did that, who they set free, cause another uprising, and consequently bring a bloodbath. And so they sought to remove him before he caused them any real trouble. They were jealous of him. He exposed their hypocrisy. And they feared his power and authority. And if he would lead an insurrection that Rome would come down on them. They knew full well how catastrophic this resurrection would be to their entire system of religion, politics, and commerce, and their entire culture. Plus, they had already had defectors from them to follow Jesus. They already had Pharisees defecting and Sadducees. There were 12 apostles as, as Jewish men defected from the Jewish faith. A chief tax collector had recently defected and soon to be identified council member, a council member, his name is Joseph of Arimathea. He would defect and even go to Pilate to ask permission to take care of the body of Jesus. So they saw a potential crumbling of their own dynasty. So we have the perspective from Rome, we've had the perspective from the religious elites, and now we're going to look at the perspective from Satan and his minions. From the time we read in Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head. Another um, translation says, he shall crush your head. Or I, he, sorry, he shall bruise, yeah. Jesus is going to crush Satan. <laughs> so, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan knows his destiny. He knew the cross would end in death. 
He also knows that God will resurrect him, rendering useless the greatest tool he had left, and that was death. Christ had already conquered sin. He conquered sin. Uh, God had already conquered sin upon Christ's death on the cross. Now upon his resurrection, he will conquer death, fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 25.8. This prophecy, you've heard it before, he, he shall swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove the disgrace of his people from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. The dragon is swirling around Golgotha. Jesus is put upon the cross, and for three hours, he remains silent. The next three hours, God unleashes his wrath upon his son. And the dragon is circling, and he's panicked. He has to stop the death of Christ. He tried to stop him from going to the cross, and he could not. He tried to offer Barabbas, and he could not do it. The following scriptures of condemnation were ringing in his devil ears. Ears as Jesus was breathing his last breath were filled with these kinds of scriptures. Ezekiel 28 verse 11. Now this is called the lament over the king of Tyre. And there actually was a king of Tyre. But like God does so many times, there are double meanings to these things. But listen to this, and since you have the sermon in front of you, I'm assuming you can read it as well. Ezekiel 28, verse 11 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation. That's the same thing as a funeral song. Over the king of Tyre, in prophecy, this means Satan, and say to him, thus says the Lord, You this is the scripture that's going through Satan's head. It's one of them. This is what God said about him. You were the signet of perfection. Now the word signet means a seal or a stamp, like a signet ring. Lucifer had God's stamp upon him, which identified him as God's work of perfection and beauty. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. So according to this scripture, Lucifer, which is what was his name before the fall, means brightness or shining star. So Lucifer was in the garden of Eden with God and Adam and Eve. Ezekiel goes on, every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and these were crafted in gold settings with engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Now think about this. God created every angel. They did not reproduce. God created every angel. 
And on the day that Lucifer was created, God created for him a covering. And that covering was covered with every precious stone. Said that Lucifer was perfect and of great beauty and full of wisdom. And God had personally prepared this garment for him. It was magnificent. It was majestic. So why was Lucifer adorned with such a magnificent covering? Well, his covering reflected his position in God's creation. Lucifer was the second, or fourth if you divide out the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was either the fourth, and however you want to look at that, the second most powerful creature in the universe, and he was the most beautiful. There was holy, magnificent, glorious, radiant God, and then Lucifer. Let's read together verse 14. You were an anointed, meaning you were set apart by authority as a guardian cherub. Who was in charge of guarding the Garden of Eden? Lucifer. A protector of God's creation. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, meaning on my mountain with me, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. We do not really know what the stones of fire mean. There are plenty of conjecture, but I'm not going to mention any of them because no one can really decide uh, it was magnificent, whatever it was. And the point is, that was under Lucifer's feet. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways, perfect in all of your ways, from the day you were created. You were created perfectly. Now, can you imagine the torture of being reminded of who you once were in light of who you had become at the moment of Christ's death on the cross, if you're Satan? Let's think. If Lucifer was as he was described in Ezekiel, what did he believe he was lacking? If you are created as God's perfect creation, full of wisdom, and the picture of beauty, what more could you have wanted? He was lacking worship. Lucifer wanted to be worshipped. And I would like to inject just a thought. I don't think it's provable by Scripture, so it's just a thought. What is the only other creation that God would treat above Lucifer to the point of sending his son? Adam. Do you think maybe there was some jealousy with Adam? Because this God who created you, that everyone else was under your authority, and then Adam is created. And God knows the story. I mean, Lucifer knows the story of Adam. Just a thought. The point is, he was lacking worship. He wanted to be worshipped. So, says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until right unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Are, this is the point, probably, of Christ's death. 
I've cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. O garden cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. I consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. If you are a narcissist, the most damning thing that you can experience is to be humiliated. Satan was humiliated. Satan was a narcissist. He was humiliated. Verse 19, All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. They're no longer being dazzled by your beauty or your perfection. Now whoever sees you is appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Then we read of his future. Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan knows that is his destiny. 2 Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, and be kept until the judgment, the sentence goes on, but his point is, why will I spare you? He's also talking to us. But the point is, that's where Satan is, or will be. Jude 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Two more scriptures about the destiny, uh, destination of Satan. Revelation 12, verse 7 says this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and the angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In Revelation Chapter 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that, ate, uh, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. But Satan's ultimate destination is the pit. So as we close our morning, I would like to call our attention to two more groups of people. We had Rome, we had the religious elites, and then we had the dragon. There's two more groups, it's very brief. Luke 23, 48 says this, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned, him beating their returned home beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, 
stood at a distance watching these things. Well, let's first identify who was not there. The disciples <laughs> were not there, with the exception of John. And he was with Christ's mother, Mary. And those who were there stood at a distance and watched in horror this horrible thing take place. His followers from Galilee, most of his disciples weren't even at the cross. Maybe one, maybe John. They weren't even at the cross. And I am sure they were heartbroken and stunned. And I am sure they were confused. And we do know that they fulfilled this prophecy. They will be scattered. And they were scattered. So we have the perspective from Rome, perspective from the religious elites, the perspective from Satan and his minions, the perspective from his followers, and finally, one more group. What's your perspective on this? Are you superstitious or a palm reader or a psychic? I was watching something on YouTube concerning a certain church that is very, very large and very powerful and very popular. They actually send their people to card reading school. And these cards are nothing more than tarot cards. And they have some of the most popular Christian music in the world right now. They're psychics infiltrating the Church of God, Church of Christ, our church, perhaps. Are you superstitious or a palm reader or a psychic? Have you placed your hope in what Rome placed their hope in? Are you a religious elite, maybe? Been studying the Bible for years, you went to school for years, and you know the Bible, you know theology, you know doctrine, but that's where it stops. Or are you dabbling in dark areas of this culture? Are you addicted? Are you in the group who call themselves believers in Christ? Or maybe you believe you're in a class by yourself. That's impossible, by the way. And here's why. There's only two groups. There are those who are believers in Jesus Christ and who have repented and received Him. And everybody else falls in the next category. They're lost and they're condemned. Can I remind you, there's a time when the Spirit is going to leave your body. And the times I've seen that, by the way, there wasn't even time for, for that person to utter a word. There may have been a groan. But when it came time for the Spirit to leave, there was no opportunity, at least verbally, to say, Pastor Tom or whoever that pastor may have been there, I want to receive Jesus now. The Spirit just left. It just left to, the, to that eternity. This is what I pray. I pray that God is speaking to your heart. He's speaking. Uh, maybe you have fears. Maybe He's addressing your fears. There's only two groups of people. There's only one perspective you can have that will show, show you an eternal heaven. And that's the perspective of someone who loves Jesus Christ, who has received Him, and who is willing to follow Him. We have a very brief song as we close our service this morning. Before we pray, uh, before we sing that song, let's pray. God, you are beautiful and you are patient with us. Thank you for your, your mercy every day. Every day is a new morning. Every morning is a new morning. God, thank you for that. And uh, we just trust God. All of us who are believers in Christ, we trust that you are pursuing our loved ones. 
And we pray they will relent and receive you.